Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm currently on the road, so I'm not in my studio, and you'll probably hear some background noise. We'll just call it au natural. Last week, we talked with Dr. McGetrick about nutrition. During that conversation, I mentioned that the most common malnutrition deficit is thiamine. I also mentioned it was closely followed by magnesium. Today, I thought we should address that fact and take a closer look at magnesium and its deficiency. The most common feedback that I've received for this podcast is that people appreciate it when we explain the mechanism of how things work, be it neurology or in this case biochemistry. So let's talk about the importance of thiamine and magnesium and a host of other things too. The first thing we need to know about magnesium is that it's the least abundant serum electrolyte. And this often leads to the mistaken idea that it isn't very important. Unfortunately, we tend to think that if there isn't much of something, we don't need much of it, therefore it could be important. And we shouldn't draw that distinction or make that assumption. In this case, as you're going to see, magnesium is extremely important. Um, it just isn't very plentiful, which is good because it means it's very easy to replenish if it's, if it's missing. It, magnesium is essential for the metabolism of calcium, potassium, zinc, copper, iron, sodium, hydrochloric acid, acetylcholine, and nitric oxide. Additionally, many enzymes, cellular homeostasis, and most importantly and relevant, activation of thiamine. Magnesium absorption and elimination is dependent on a number of variables. Magnesium absorption requires a lot of magnesium in the diet due to the fact that our absorption is inefficient. Plus, it also requires selenium, parathyroid hormone, and vitamins B6 and D. Magnesium absorption is hindered by excess fat in the diet. Magnesium levels are decreased by excess ethanol, alcohol, salt, phosphoric acid, as in sodas, coffee intake, profuse sweating, intense prolonged stress, excessive menstruation, and vaginal flux diuretics and other drugs, and by certain parasites, namely pinworms. The great thing about magnesium is it's inexpensive and it has very low toxicity. Now, there are some pathologies associated with magnesium deficiency, and I want you to look at this closely, because after I tell you this long list, I'm going to explain something. The pathologies associated with magnesium deficiency are cardiovascular disease, kidney and liver disease, Peroxynitrite damage, which shows up in the form of migraines, multiple sclerosis, remember that one, glaucoma, Alzheimer's disease, recurrent bacterial infections due to low levels of nitric oxide, fungal infections due to suppressed immune system, thiamine deactivation, which means low gastric acid and behavioral disorders, premenstrual syndrome, calcium deficiency, which results in osteoporosis, hypertension, and mood swings, tooth cavities, hearing loss, diabetes type 2, cramps, muscle weakness, impotence due to the lack of nitric oxide, fibromas, potassium deficiency, which results in arrhythmia, hypertension, some forms of cancer, and iron accumulation. Now, if you look at this, you see what a long and diverse list this is, and that is the reason why studies on magnesium are so difficult to control for. 
it's often ineffective to simply try to, to try magnesium supplementation and just throw some magnesium at it without ensuring proper absorption and preventing excess elimination. So the fact that you don't know if you're absorbing correctly and you don't know if you're having excess uh, loss basically means that as you're putting something in, you don't really know where the problem is. So it causes the researchers to draw false conclusions. And that's where we run into some, some complication when it comes to understanding magnesium deficiency. So let's take a look at the same problem, but let's look from a different angle. Remember I, when I said multiple sclerosis, I said remember that one. So let's take multiple sclerosis and let's look at that condition, but let's look in reverse. So let's look at the mechanism of what happens in multiple sclerosis and then look at the underlying biochemical problem and how it creates the multiple sclerosis. And then we can look at the role that magnesium plays in that. The highest incidence of multiple sclerosis occurs in females, Caucasians, in colder, wetter climates. So each one of those risk factors has a reason behind it. So let's look at each one or we'll look at the mechanism and we'll see why each one of those factors actually plays a role. First off, menstruating women have increased copper absorption and half-life. Rapidly growing girls have increased demand for zinc, but rapidly decreasing production of melatonin leads to impaired zinc absorption, which is exacerbated by high levels of copper. So that's very confusing. I've gone over it many times. I wrote it out. I've <laughs> it's still confusing. So basically with menstruation, you have um, more copper, you have an increased demand for zinc, but because melatonin is going down during these years, and we'll talk about melatonin more in a second, but as melatonin is going down, it impairs your zinc absorption. And because it impairs the zinc absorption, these already high copper levels get even higher. So hold that for a second, and we'll come back. Just remember high copper levels, low zinc levels. Melatonin is generally thought of as a sleep aid, and that's often how we use it. But it's really much more than that. Melatonin is actually an oxygen-free radical scavenger. Um, in fact, believe it or not, there was actually some demonstrations that showed um, that when, um, when melatonin was nebulized, it had incredible benefits for people with COVID because the melatonin nebulized could then get into their lungs and did amazing things with modulating their immune system and saving them. So I don't know that um, nothing really big scale was done, but in small studies with this, they actually found it to be quite productive. Anyway, um, melatonin modulates blood pressure, body temperature, cortisol rhythm, sleep-awake cycle, immune function, and antioxidative defense. In fact, as I was researching it, one meta-analysis actually showed that melatonin has analgesic effects. And so they discovered through this that it actually plays a role in modulating pain perception. And therefore, people with abnormal pain perception could be a function of decreasing melatonin. And, they, and that could be a good sign that they need to increase their melatonin uh, to, to supplement back to balance. Okay, so back to the previous thing. So we know this about melatonin. Melatonin goes down, it peaks early in age, and then it goes down. As it goes down, that decreases zinc absorption. As zinc absorption goes down, it's, it fails to offset copper absorption, and so we end up with high copper, low zinc, low melatonin. Low zinc levels result in deficient copper-zinc superoxide dismutase, which leads to higher levels of superoxide. So don't worry too much about the CZSD, as they call it, because, well, it's obvious. Um, nobody wants to say that word more than they have to. But because of that, we lead to a superoxide. So I'll talk more about that superoxide in just a second. Let's talk more about some of the other factors creating that. 
Menstruating females often present with low magnesium and B6 levels. So now we've got two more functions, magnesium and B6. We've got to remember those because this, this all gets very, very complicated, which then makes it obvious why so many people want to avoid looking at it at all because it is very drawn out. Okay, so magnesium and B6 levels, low. Vitamin B6 moderates intracellular nitric oxide production and extracellular magnesium is required for nitric oxide release from the cell so that a deficiency in both nutrients leads to increased nitric oxide production inside the cell but reduced release outside the cell. So here's the important part. The trapped nitric oxide combines with the superoxide that's already formed to form peroxynitrite, which is an extremely powerful free radical that ultimately leads to myelin damage indicative of multiple sclerosis. So if you can see, we actually have two things happening simultaneously that are making each other worse. First is because of the high copper, low zinc, we failed to produce the, um, the nitric oxide, uh, the copper zinc superoxide dismutase, we fail to form that. And that creates the presence of a superoxide, which is dangerous to our bodies. It's bad. It needs to be eliminated, but can't be eliminated because we don't have the elements to eliminate. So this superoxide already exists. And then on a separate note, we end up with low B6, low magnesium. That causes nitric oxide to be overcreated within the cell, but under-released from the cell. As that nitric oxide builds up inside the cell, it combines with the superoxide that's already there, and that is what creates the, oh, sorry, I'm looking through my notes and now I can't find it. It's the, oh, that's what creates the peroxynitrite. And the peroxynitrite is the powerful free radical that causes the myelin damage. So we could talk about supplementation already. You should already be getting an idea of what supplements do we need to increase which and, and what things do we need to avoid. Obviously, we need to get rid of copper, but we need to increase magnesium. We need to, um, we need to increase zinc. Um, and we need to increase B6. Um, and I, at the end, I will go over, I, there's a formula that they came up with um, on how to offset this nutritionally, but we'll get to that because there's some, um, <laughs> there's always caveats. There's a caveat with that as well. So uh, moving on. So now we've got the creation of multiple sclerosis from nutritional deficiency. Now, we, whether or not it's a mild case or a, a moderate case or something more, um, Sorry about that. As I was recording, a deer walked right in front of me and it scared me. So that <laughs> kind of led me off course. Uh, let's get back on course now that I know it's just a deer and I'm totally safe. Um, so the way we can make this worse is that there are things like iron, molybdenum, and cadmium, which the major sources of cadmium are smoking and eating contaminated food, um, which some foods are contaminated with, with cadmium. That accumulation actually increases that superoxide production. Therefore, being in a consistent state of high iron or for people who are smoking and are constantly getting a source of cadmium, what it's gonna do is increase that superoxide, which means it's going to exacerbate or rapidly worsen the effect of their multiple sclerosis if they have it, or if they don't have it, it could be the thing that pushes them over the edge and makes them start to have it. Um, now. MS does not always occur in females. It does occur in males as well. So to explain the occurrence of MS in males, we have to look at the male tendency to accumulate iron much faster and copper much slower than females. So in the male population, it's more of an iron issue. So with women, you should be looking more at copper accumulation 
With men, you should be looking more at iron accumulation. Um, and I, I don't usually tease shows ahead of time, but we have one coming up that we're going to be doing where we're going to be talking about blood tests. Um, I have a guest coming on and we're going to be talking about blood exams. And so when it comes to looking at these things, we can use blood tests to look at these things and figure them out. So we're putting those pieces together. So we will be doing that in the next couple of weeks. Um, okay, so when it comes to magnesium absorption, which as we saw before, magnesium plays a big role in this, vitamin D is paramount for magnesium absorption. So if you're low in vitamin D, it doesn't matter how much magnesium you're taking, you're not going to assimilate it the way that you should. And where that can become a problem, and the reason why the climate, it's not really even the climate, it's the latitude that you live at, can play a role in increasing rates of things like multiple sclerosis, is because lower sunlight exposure in the higher latitudes is the ex explanation for the incidence of multiple sclerosis in northern states for both males and females. Additionally, B2 is a cofactor for xanthine oxidase, and its deficiency exacerbates the low levels of uric acid caused by high copper levels, resulting in myelin degeneration. So another thing we would want to supplement with is B2. Um, in fact, you'll see in the recommendations, we don't really separate out the B vitamins. Um, the recommendations just recommend doing a, all the B vitamins because B vitamins are quite important that way. Um, finally, selenium and vitamin E prevent lipid peroxidation. Okay, so selenium and vitamin E will prevent us from creating more of the bad stuff. And EPA and DHA upregulate copper-zinc superoxide, which means they upregulate us making more of the good stuff. So selenium and vitamin E keep down the bad stuff. EPA and DHA upregulate the good stuff. So now we've got four more supplements. You can see how this gets out of hand pretty quickly. Therefore, <laughs> finally, the nutritional supplementation that may prevent MS. Now here's the key and the caveat that always exists. It has to be given every day between the ages of 14 and 16. The bummer is if somebody already has multiple sclerosis and you start supplementing, it's probably too late already. Now that doesn't mean I wouldn't do it, doesn't mean it won't help, um, but it's, not, it's gonna have lesser benefits because it's already too late. You've already let the horse out of the barn and now you're trying to put it back in. Um, the other problem is that these values that I'm going to give you are probably way too low. Um, this is, these values are based on giving at the ages of 14 and 16, um, based on research, and, um, and it's to prevent. Once you get into treatment versus prevention, generally speaking, your numbers have to go up. You cannot cure with the same low levels that you can prevent with. So here is the formula. It's 100 milligrams of magnesium, 25 milligrams of vitamin B6, 10 milligrams of vitamin B2, 15 milligrams of zinc, 400 IU of vitamin D, and 400 IU of vitamin E, 100 micrograms of selenium, 100 milligrams of EPA, and 120 milligrams of DHA. So you can see just by putting this together with something like multiple sclerosis, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine supplements that have to be in proper balance for it to work and screwing up any one of these sends you down that road where it becomes a catalyst where you're going to start depleting the others as well so um, you really can't even have one of them be too low without them rapidly descending into all of them being affected by it and that's kind of the point uh, we'll sum this all up later but 
that's kind of the point I want you to see is I wanted you to see how complicated this is, how all of these things are interactive and they don't just coexist. I think that often with nutrition supplementation, there's a tendency to think that, well, these things just coexist. If I just make sure all the levels are right, I'll be okay. And if I miss one, well, how bad could that be? When the reality is, if you miss one, you're throwing off the whole balance and that's going to deplete the ones that need to be high and it's going to raise the ones that need to be low. And it throws off the whole balance of the whole thing and it starts this cascading effect. And that that's the key to nutrition is that when we create the cascade or we start the cascade, then the whole thing just falls apart. Now that we have our usual suspects, zinc, magnesium, B6, uh, all the things that we just discussed, I wanted to show you something that I think is kind of interesting because you're going to see all these usual suspects start popping up again uh, in a totally different area. So let's start with the fact that alcohol consumption increases elimination of both zinc and magnesium. So the more you drink, the worse it gets. So I'm not going to make the statement of you should never do that. It's always bad. Um, it probably is more just an issue of recognizing that if you're going to choose to do that, whether it's um, chronic, well, I, okay, let's say recreationally, you probably should supplement. If you have a patient who is, let's say, an alcoholic and you're trying to help them with their health, we all know that alcoholism has negative health effects. So if we know that that's happening and we want to try to help bring them back to health, a good place to start would be supplementing with zinc and magnesium. We know that their alcoholism is going to continue to diminish those nutrients, but as you put them back in, you can at least help to stave off some of the damage being caused by the fact that they're basically leaking zinc and magnesium like a sieve, and you just want to put it back in there to whatever degree you can as you're trying to solve the alcoholism problem. So, moving forward from that, people with Wilson's disease have increased copper, copper accumulation which Wilson's disease is actually a very, very bad disease. Fortunately, it's also an extremely rare disease. And so because of that, it often gets forgotten or left aside. However, the heterozygous version of Wilson's disease is not so rare. It's actually fairly common. So here's what happens. The developing fetus of a pregnant woman who is low in zinc and high in copper, typical experience, may experience major difficulties in the early stages of brain development for the fetus, which could later manifest as schizophrenia, autism, or epilepsy. Uh, I want to stop and just for a second and just tell you that this information is distilled from numerous articles, like numerous research articles off PubMed that I kind of strung together. So one article would give me a piece of information, I would take that piece, and then I would hunt down the part they didn't fill in, find that piece, put it in. And so that's where this comes from. So if it seems a little disjointed, that's why. There are actually probably some gaps going from one study to the next, but for the most part, we can piece the pieces together. Okay, so you've got brain development being in interfered with due to the low zinc, high copper experience, which could later manifest as schizophrenia, autism, or epilepsy. Obviously, there are other triggering factors. There are other comorbidities. There are other things that could make the schizophrenia, autism, or epilepsy, it could make it show up if it wasn't there before. Um, it could be the trigger that sets it off. It also could be something that exacerbates it, takes it from a lower level, and makes it something worse. So these are all things that need to be known in order to, man to manage this. However, once it's done, there's nothing we can do about it once it's done. The idea, ideally, is to prevent it. So that's where we need to be very mindful in pregnancy of making sure that zinc levels stay high and copper levels stay low. And we kind of do that by keeping the zinc levels high, keep magnesium high. In like fashion, 
A person who gradually accumulated copper will tend to experience a gradual depletion of zinc. And this could be far more dangerous just because it's more insidious. We're not even aware that it's even happening. So as they have this gradual depletion of zinc, they then have a corresponding increase in oxidative damage, eventually leading, get this, to Parkinson's disease. This association is so close that it's even been suggested, I found numerous research, research articles suggesting this, that Parkinson's disease is simply the name for the heterozygous form of Wilson's disease. It was then suggested that if this is true, the most effective treatment for Parkinson's disease would be zinc supplementation, copper chelation, and phlebotomy to reduce iron accumulation. That recipe was taken directly from research on this study. It was somebody who came in to do a study because they already knew that, that uh, Parkinson's disease was called the heterozygous form of Wilson's disease. So because they already knew that, they wanted to see how it played out. And in the end, they came up with this strategy of supplementing with zinc, chelating for copper, and using phlebotomy to, to steal iron out of the blood and, and reduce the accumulation of iron in the blood. Now, what I haven't seen are any studies using that therapy to actually say, does it work to any means? And I don't know. So it's great that we now have a nice theoretical version of what could potentially work. Um, I'm still searching for it because you never know when somebody might actually do it. But I'd love to see the study that actually shows what happens when you apply that strategy to a Parkinson's patient. Are you actually able to help them with that strategy? It's commonly believed that intellect is the result of programming and training. Very few have considered the profound ways in which nutrients change brain structure and function for better or worse. So let's look at the brain itself, how it functions, and all the different vitamins that are involved, especially in this case, we're going to look very specifically at the B vitamins. The use of glucose to create energy in the brain indicates the presence of B1. Thiamine, once again, thiamine is very important. In fact, as we talked about with Dr. McGetrick, thiamine has no upper limit. And so that's why it's been shown that the more thiamine you have, the more functional thiamine that you're using, the more benefit you get from it. So you can actually just keep taking it up and up and up. So if people want to look at uh, unlimited intellect potential, thiamine would theoretically be the key to that. B9 preserves brain tissue during development and preserves brain memory during aging, which means that B9 should be supplemented when we're young and it should be supplemented when we're old, primarily. B6 has the benefit in treating premenstrual depression. So any women who are having premenstrual depression, B6 is your, should be your go-to. B6 and B12 are directly involved in the creation of certain neurotransmitters. So since we're working with the nervous system, B6 and B12 should be high on that list. B12 delays the onset of dementia and certain blood disorders, provided it is supplied before the onset of the first symptoms. This is probably the most crucial mistake that's being made with B12 is that we don't supplement with B12 until somebody has symptoms of low B12, which often shows up as dementia or something like that. So then we go, oh, you're low. You need to be supplemented. So we supplement them. The problem is it's already too late. We need to make sure B12 levels are high enough before they have any of those symptoms if we really want it to work right. Cobalamin improves cerebral and cognitive functions in the elderly. So that's a great one to use. Adolescents who are borderline or below in B12 develop signs of cognitive change. So again, we don't usually think of adolescents, kids that are still growing, as needing B12. And yet, a lot of our research shows that they do. 
um, and these cognitive changes that they go through with low uh, B12, um, they didn't really specify, they're not positive. <laughs> this is not good stuff that's happening. This is bad stuff that's happening. And when you look at the amount of teen depression, teen suicides, things like that, it, it's a shame if, if it's so simple as simply B12. We also have to look at the fact, and I didn't put much together on this, it's just a known thing, and I probably could do a whole podcast on this in addition, would be the issue of which drugs deplete which vitamins and to what extent. And I would guarantee you, I know that there are drugs that are depleting B12, because B12 exists largely in the gut. And if we're taking drugs internally and they're getting into the gut, they most likely are depleting B12. There's also probably certain foods that are doing it. And as you're taking that B12 down, you're going to increase over the population, the risk of, um, of depression, uh, suicide, those kind of things. Uh, the nerve endings in the brain contain the second highest concentration of vitamin C behind the adrenal glands. So we talk about vitamin C like it's immune functions and things like that. We don't often talk about vitamin C and the fact that it's not like spread evenly throughout the body. It does accumulate in certain places. And the adrenal glands are the greatest concentration. The second greatest concentration is the brain. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you the places that, le that need a lot of complex neurology are the places that need a lot of vitamin C. And it could even just be as a protective measure against vitamins and bacteria, which even if that's the only purpose it serves, that is an enormous purpose. Um, as I've been doing other research, I am coming to a very keen awareness that viruses, viruses in particular love to attack nerve endings. They use nerves to move themselves from one part of the body to the other. And as they move along the nerves doing that, they damage the nerve that they're moving along. Vitamin C accumulated in the nerve is going to help to protect against that effect. So that's a big key to remember as well. Vitamin D plays an important role in neurogenitive and, and neuroimmune disease. So anytime we get those things, as we talked about with um, multiple sclerosis, uh, you need the vitamin D to absorb the magnesium, and then the magnesium plays a direct role in how things, in, in creating the damaging effects that lead to uh, the multiple sclerosis. So it's a precursor to the problem. So vitamin D needs to stay high. Um, of the vitamin E components, only alpha-tocopherol is taken up by the brain to protect nerve membranes. So vitamin E in general is good, like we need it for lots and lots of things, but specifically for the brain, it's the alpha tocopherol that's going to help, that the brain wants to take in in order to protect itself. Iron ensures oxygenation and produces energy in the cerebral parenchyma via, via cytochrome oxidase and for the production of neurotransmitters and myelin. So the important thing here is because we talked about iron earlier, but we were talking about iron accumulation and the fact that in Parkinson's you have too much iron and it's creating a problem. However, if you have too little iron, um, now you have a different problem where you're not producing neurotransmitters and you're not producing proper myelin. So what you can see, I find this, it's the point I often bring up with patients is that in medicine, there's a tendency to name diseases and they just name them and often the names are not associated. So that causes us to disassociate the diseases from one another. So then we start to think, well, that disease has nothing to do with this disease because why would we think that they had anything to do with each other? When in reality, one disease is on the too much level and then the other disease is the exact same thing on the too little level. And so here we're looking at one of those where we've got Parkinson's with too much iron, but we've got demyelinating problems with too little iron. So we've got to get in that zone of just right. Iron deficiency is generally found in children with ADHD. 
So again, low iron. Iron concentrations in the umbilical artery are critical and are associated with the child's IQ. So a lot of times, I, I don't usually like IQ that much. I don't like to regard IQ. It's not a good predictor of things like I mentioned at the end of the last one. I, IQ is just one of those things. But it's necessary. You may not need to have a high IQ to be productive. Um, some of the most productive people don't have high IQs. However, you need to have at least a minimum IQ. And when, ch when children fall are born and they fall below the minimum IQ, now you lead to um, lifelong difficulties because the IQ is too low. And now it becomes more pathological. So it's important to keep the IQ above that minimum level. And knowing that iron concentrations in the umbilical artery are critical to creating that, um, again, we got to keep iron up. And so when you've got women who probably are experiencing a lot of, well, they, before they're pregnant, they're experiencing a lot of blood loss. So they may already have an iron deficiency anemia to begin with. So then as they get pregnant and the body needs to accumulate that iron, there's no iron to accumulate. If they're not supplementing with iron and they're not eating the right foods, they're eating a junk food diet as a lot of people do, not really knowing what healthy is, there's just no source of iron. And if the body has no source of iron, it can't create it out of thin air. So now you have an umbilical cord that's deficient in, in iron and you're have a kid that who's going to ultimately be cursed to a low IQ and there's nobody telling them that this is what needs to happen or this is how it needs to happen. Uh, and so speaking of that, iron deficiency anemia is common, especially in women. And it's associated, the female symptoms for the mother, it's associated with apathy, depression, and I like this one as a good, as a good cue, rapid fatigue when exercising. If you don't have that iron and you don't have a lot of oxygen binding capacity, you're going to stress the system and it's going to fail very quickly, which means you do some exercise and you're just going to have rapid fatigue. You shouldn't have rapid fatigue. Zinc plays a vital role. So back to brain chemistry. Zinc plays a vital role in the perception of taste. I never heard that before, but found that to be rather interesting. Unbalanced copper metabolism. Sorry, I read that wrong. Unbalanced copper metabolism homeostasis is linked to Alzheimer's disease. So again, another brain dysfunction happening from poor copper metabolism and the inability to maintain homeostasis. Manganese, copper, and zinc participate in enzymatic mechanisms that protect against free radicals. So we got three more supplements uh, and we need enzymes. We often leave out the enzyme parts. We have these active enzymes in our brain that are going through cleaning out garbage before it can accumulate and become a problem. But if we don't have the manganese, the copper, and the zinc, granted, it's not a lot. You don't need a lot. You just need a little bit. But that little bit is vitally important compared to having none. And if you don't have it, you don't get the enzymes, you don't build the stuff, you don't protect your brain. So these are all first world deficiencies that exist because of high calorie malnutrition. So I wanted to talk about brain function. Since we're talking about the, all these nutrients, I wanted to hit this from a bunch of different angles. So that's why I wanted to talk about magnesium, what it does, and how complicated it is, and why we don't, it's hard to really get good data on magnesium itself. So then we can talk about multiple sclerosis and the mechanism by which a pathology is created from a nutritional imbalance. Then we can look at brain function and just look at all the nutrients required for a good, healthy brain, and yet a lot of them aren't there. And so we see these first world deficiencies caused by the same malnutritions. So by not what I wanted you to see was that it's the same usual suspects over and over and over and over again. So by not having them in the diet, we don't just 
have a magnesium deficiency, which sounds like, oh, it's no big deal. Just have some magnesium, you'll be fine. No, it's not that simple. By not having these things in our diet, we're damaging our brain function. We're creating a scenario that could potentially lead to something like multiple sclerosis or a host of other conditions because it's all the usual suspects showing up over and over again. Most doctors have been brainwashed to believe that malnutrition only exists when food is absent. The idea that you could be fully satiated, even obese, and still have nutritional deficiencies is completely foreign to our healthcare system. But here it is, right in front of us. All of these diseases that we're discussing are rampant in the United States, but they can be seen in first world countries all over the globe. So let's sum up what we've learned today in four simple points. The first one, all nutrients are so interdependent that we can't think in oversimplified terms like simply deficiency. That simply implies that, you're, that you aren't getting enough. But what if your problem is that you're losing it too quickly? In spite of supplementation, you still have an imbalance. It's like trying to pour water into a glass that has a hole in it and still maintain a precise level. Number two, we need to eat food that is nutritious and not simply calorie dense. In fact, calorie deprecation is far more beneficial. Our body is more satiated by the presence of nutrition than it is by the presence of calories. That's why you can eat an obscene amount of food and still feel hungry or feel hungry again very soon. The best guide for nutrition is to eat foods that were alive, whether plant or animal, not just created in a lab. Number three, added sugars drive nutrient and energy deficits in obesity. Believe it or not, that was the actual title of a research article. We should define obesity as a state of hormonal imbalance causing increased shunting of food energy into adipose tissue for storage, resulting in decreased satiety and ultimately leading to increased calorie intake. Obesity is a state of nutrient and energy deficit, leading to decreased fatty acid mobilization and oxidation, the result of which may be a disinclination toward physical activity. Sugars exacerbate this condition because while they provide energy in the form of calories, they inhibit the production of energy. Sugar damages the mitochondria, hurting energy production. It also creates internal starvation by affecting leptin and insulin resistance. Number four, the final point is a philosophical one. BJ Palmer asked the question, do you have more faith in a spoonful of medicine than you have in the power that made the body? I would ask it a little differently. Do you have more faith in the person who only prescribes medicine for symptoms than you do in the person who knows and understands the mechanism of human function and supports the power that made the body. This is the question for our present time. There's currently a battle for the minds of people to believe that their bodies are weak and helpless and only medicine has the knowledge and understanding to save them. Even in spite of spectacular failure and an unbelievably high number of iatrogenic or doctor-caused deaths, the public is ripe for a revolution and a reformation based in the idea that our bodies have an amazing capacity to self-heal if only given what they need with no interference. Diet and nutrition are not chiropractic, although they are often substituted in place of chiropractic when knowledge and experience in chiropractic are absent. We should never substitute nutrition for chiropractic, but we should not be ignorant of nutrition either. In our times, 
This is the driving force behind chronic disease and our patients' inability to heal. This is not a mandate, but an opportunity. We need to take advantage of the opportunity to reawaken the human consciousness to what it means to truly be healthy, and it can't be found in a bottle or a lab. Thank you for joining me today. I hope this helped you to understand the vital role that magnesium and thymine play in human physiology and why their deficit is so destructive toward health. Next week, we'll be back in the studio with another guest, and I think you'll really enjoy who we have joining us. Until then, I hope you have the best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank you.